The Old Testament lesson for the third Sunday after the Epiphany is from 2 Kings chapter 5. Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and in high favor, because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. Now the Syrians on one of their raids had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel, and she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, Would that my lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria. He would cure him of his leprosy. So Naaman went in and told his lord, Thus and so spoke the girl from the land of Israel. And the king of Syria said, Go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So he went, taking with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten changes of clothes. And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which read, When this letter reaches you, know that I have sent to you Naaman, my servant, that you may cure him of his leprosy. And when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God, to kill and to make alive, that this man sends word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? Only consider and see how he is seeking a quarrel with me. But when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent to the king, saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Let him come now to me, that he may know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and chariots and stood at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a messenger to him, saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored, and you shall be clean. But Naaman was angry and went away, saying, Behold, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. But his servants came near and said to him, My father, it is a great word the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? Has he actually said to you, Wash and be clean? So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. Then he returned to the man of God, he and all his company, and he came and stood before him. O Lord, have mercy on us. The Holy Gospel according to St. Matthew, the eighth chapter. When Jesus came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him, and behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to a priest, and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them. When he entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me, and I say to one, go, 
and he goes, and to another come, and he comes, and to my servant do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, Truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And to the centurion Jesus said, Go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. O Lord, have mercy on us. Grace, mercy, and peace be to you from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. There are at least a few straightforward sermons that can be preached on a miracle gospel lesson like this, and they are good and helpful sermons. You can learn from Christ's miracles that he has power over sickness and nature and uncleanness and sin and death. He can do whatever he wants to. He can cleanse the lepers, give sight to the blind, make the lame walk, and even raise the dead. He can do all of the things prophesied of the suffering servant in Isaiah. He proves that he has come with the authority of God. You can also learn something of God's plan for this world. God plans to create a new heavens and a new earth, a world in which sin and sorrow and suffering hold no sway. His work of new creation begins even now for his people as he heals them, touching them and making them whole. His work of new creation pours out as he walks along around Judea and Galilee, showing compassion and restoring the life of his creation. You learn also what it cost him. For when Christ touches the leper to make him whole, he takes that poor man's uncleanness into himself and gives him his own cleanness. It is a picture of the great exchange, the blessed exchange, in which Christ takes our place, paying the penalty for our sins that we owe and giving us his inheritance as the Son of God, his righteousness, innocence, and blessedness. Those are all good sermons that must be preached, but as I was preparing for this Sunday, I was struck by the need for another, perhaps less obvious, sermon that comes from a question raised by stories like these. It's a very simple question. Why do Naaman and the leper and the centurion all get miracles, but you and I do not? Of course, you can ask the same question of any of the miracles Jesus performed, but it especially comes to light when you consider his healing miracles. What do people pray for more earnestly and more fervently than their own health and the health of their loved ones? When is the need for a miracle more evident than in the face of a terminal diagnosis, an injury that has left someone on life support, a cancer with a low chance of survival? a dementia that slowly but surely disappears your loved ones before your eyes. Lots of things threaten our happiness and comfort, but we are naturally most inclined to pray when life itself is on the line. That's when we feel our need. That's when we are most frightened, when the terrors of the night make their way into the daytime. That's when we feel most 
helpless. Occasionally, miracles do happen. I don't want to discount that. Occasionally, people inexplicably become well against the steepest odds, but it's rare. Rare enough for an honest person to say that the odds are really not good, and smart money is with whatever the doctors have to say. And that means that often, when we pray most desperately, we do not receive what we have asked for. We do not get a miracle like Naaman, the centurion, the leper, and a whole host of other people in the Bible. Why not? Why do they get miracles and we do not? Why do they get their loved ones back and we do not? Why do they get to see Jesus' compassion so vividly and personally applied to them, but we do not? I'm going to answer that question, but at first glance you will think that it's not a very satisfying answer. It's an answer that looks good on paper, something that sounds good until you actually have to believe it. It's an answer that doesn't always do much to settle the matter in our hearts. But stick with me and hear me all the way through. This is the answer. What Jesus does is always good. It was good when Jesus was asked by Naaman, the leper, and the centurion, and by many other folks as well. It was good when Jesus gave them a miracle. And it is good when you and your loved ones and many other folks as well ask for a miracle, and he does not give you one. What Jesus does is always good. And that, you see, is a matter of faith. Because you cannot see it. You cannot see the goodness of what Jesus does. You cannot see the goodness of sorrow and sickness and suffering and death. And I don't just mean the practical lessons that come from enduring difficulty. I don't mean the notion that whatever doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes it makes you weaker. And who's to say that it won't kill you? You cannot see the goodness of it. Just as with your eyes, you could never see the goodness of the cross. You could never see the goodness of nails piercing Jesus' hands and feet, the spear thrust into his side, his blood poured out. You couldn't see the goodness of any of that. But you have believed it. As much as the miracles show us something of Jesus' power and his compassion and his will to save, they also show us something vitally important about faith. They show us that when faith prays, it always prays according to Jesus' will. Every prayer always includes, thy will be done and not mine. Every prayer of faith that asks for a miracle must commend the matter finally to Jesus himself because what Jesus does is always good. You heard it in the petition of the leper. Lord, if you will you can make me well. What Jesus wills and does is always good. Pay attention to how different that is from what you and I will and do. What you and I do is not always good. Seldom, in fact. And not just because we may have wicked intentions, but often simply because we don't know what is good. We can guess. And we may have a strong feeling that a miracle would be good. But just ask yourself, 
Have you ever been wrong before? Have you ever made a mistake? What about Jesus? When Jesus gives miracles to these folks, he commends their faith because they have trusted that what he does is always good. And this is a striking thing about these miracle lessons. This is the key. Their faith, the faith of the centurion and the leper and Naaman, their faith would have received good things from Jesus whether he gave them a miracle or not. The best example of this, I think, is the three young men in the book of Daniel who were thrown into the fiery furnace. You remember this story, I think. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They were faithful. They believed God. They trusted that what he does is always good. And when they were told to bow down and worship a golden statue, they refused. And when they were threatened with a fiery furnace, this is what they said. O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If you will toss us into the fiery furnace, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. But even if he does not, make no mistake that we will not serve your gods or worship your statue. Those three men were confident that God could save them and that he would preserve them even if their flesh were destroyed. Their confession didn't depend on God saving them from the furnace. Their confession was that God does what is good and that what God does is always good. And that is why they refused to worship other gods. No other god could promise that. You may think it's easier for them or for folks like Naaman, the leper, and the centurion. It's easier for them to believe since they were the ones who got a miracle. You may think to yourself, it'd be easier for me to believe if I got a miracle too. It'd be easier for me to trust Jesus if just once he would give me what I most desperately ask for. But the reality is, those folks have to believe in the very same way that you do. After all, in the big scheme of things, what is one miracle? Take the centurion, for instance. He came to Jesus out of compassion for his servant who was suffering terribly. He amazed Jesus with his faith, which confessed that he was unworthy to have Jesus come under his roof, and confessed that Jesus had all authority in heaven and on earth to speak and command the disease to depart, and it would have to listen to him. Go and let it be done for you as you have believed, Jesus said. And the servant was healed that very moment. It was one miracle what he most desperately wanted, and what he thought would be good in the moment he needed it most. But what about next time? What if next it is his wife who is on her deathbed, or his son? Do you suppose that then it would somehow be easy for him to believe that what Jesus does is always good? One miracle didn't cure all his ills. It didn't save him from suffering and sorrow. It finally didn't save anyone from death. It didn't make it any easier for him to believe that what Jesus does is always good. Maybe it was easier for him to believe that Jesus can do anything. He'd seen his power in action. But in a moment of crisis, in a time of desperate need, that fact that Jesus can do anything, which looks good on paper, doesn't really help you to believe that Jesus will do what is good. One miracle doesn't make believing any easier. Maybe it even makes it harder. 
It's like catching a fish on your first catch, first cast. It sets you up for some pretty unrealistic expectations. Don't think that faith would be easier if only you got a miracle. Because the truth is that it's only hard because of our sinful flesh. It's not that Jesus has deprived us or is making things harder than they ought to be. It's because of our sinful flesh that we do not perceive all of the good things that Jesus does. The only way to respond when we find it hard to believe is to repent. It is to confess that Christ has already given us every good thing. And it is in our ingratitude that we crave something different, something more, something other than what he has promised to us. The only way to respond is to listen again to Jesus' promises, to receive again his forgiveness, to hear his words of comfort, to eat and drink his flesh and blood which he gave for your sake, to secure for you every good thing. Repentance is a return to your baptism. It's starting from the beginning, drowning again the old man and hearing again God's voice when he calls you his child and believing again that you are safe in Christ. The truth is it doesn't look like much, baptism. It doesn't look like much. A bit of water and a handful of words. But it didn't seem like much to Naaman either when Elisha told him to wash in the Jordan River seven times. Naaman wanted something better. He deserved better. He was a commander of the army of the king of Syria. He was a great man and highly favored. He was successful and victorious. He had made a name for himself. If anyone deserved to be cured of leprosy, it was Naaman. But when Naaman arrived at Elisha's house, he did not receive a welcome befitting his status. Elisha didn't send him gifts or an entourage to accompany him to his door. He sent a messenger with instructions. He didn't even open the door and show him his own face. Elisha sent a messenger to say, go and wash in the Jordan seven times. Your flesh will be restored and you will be clean. This was too little for Naaman. He wanted a spectacle. He wanted something dramatic. He was expecting Elisha to come out in power with a display and something sort of magical. And instead, Elisha told him to go and wash. Go and do the ordinary thing that everyone does day after day, and you will be healed, and you will be clean. Aren't all of the rivers of Damascus better than even the best waters of Israel, much less this crummy Jordan River? So Naaman turned and went away in a rage. It's the kind of cure, if that's the kind of cure that Elisha was going to give to him, he didn't want it. Now all too often, that is how we think of our baptism. Trivial. Not the kind of cure that we're looking for. Not the kind of miracle that we want. We want something better. But somehow, and you might even say, miraculously, Naaman's servants prevailed upon him. My father, it is a great word the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? Has he actually said to you, wash and be clean? So Naaman went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan according to the word of the man of God and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child and he was clean. But more stunning than that is what follows after just after our lesson ended. You heard that Naaman stood before the house of Elisha and this is what Naaman said. Now I know that there is no God in all the earth except the God of Israel. He'd been cured of his leprosy 
But more importantly, he'd become a child of God, like a newborn baby. The miracle was that God called him in the first place. Remember, he had turned away in a rage. He wasn't going to believe anything. But God called him, and he heard God's call and believed. Against all odds, and in the face of certain eternal death, and contrary to all his efforts not to have it, this man now lived a new life with the promise of salvation and eternity before him. Your baptism doesn't look like much. And rest assured, the world and the devil and your own sinful flesh are constantly after you, murmuring to you that there are better miracles, and that if God really loved you, if Jesus were really to do you good, he'd show you a miracle more spectacular, something you actually need. But there is no greater miracle. For in your baptism, you were called from darkness into light. You were brought from death into life. You were made from an enemy of God into his friend, his child, his beloved, for whom he would do anything. Before your baptism, you had no reason to expect anything good from God, no reason to think that he'd hear your prayers, no reason to expect that he'd give you something good. But in your baptism, you were given a new birth, and you were given God's own name, by which you can lay claim to every good thing he has promised you, by which you can pray with confidence for your every last need, certain that whatever he gives you, miracle or not, is for your good. That certainty, that confidence, is not yours by nature. It is a gift of the Holy Spirit, that you can ask him with all boldness and confidence as a dear child asks his dear father, that you can talk to God like that is a miracle that you're sitting here right now, hearing God's word, being strengthened in your faith, growing in love, maturing in wisdom, learning to pray as Christ prayed, all of that is an unbelievable miracle wrought in your baptism as lowly and trivial as it may seem. So when you doubt, or when you cry out for a miracle, or when you suffer because you have not received one, or when you wonder what good Jesus can possibly be doing for you, crawl back to your baptism. Begin again. Start there. See your sinful flesh drowned in the waters and hear your Father's voice breaking through the clouds, assuring you that you are his beloved child with whom he is well pleased and for whom he would give absolutely everything he's got. May the peace of God, which passes all understanding, guard and keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Amen. Please rise and we continue with the canticle on page 223.